Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Mark Lanigan, the frontman of Screaming Trees and a great solo artist, has died at age 57. We're going to devote this episode to an amazing and sometimes harrowing interview that our own Corey Groh did with Mark back in 2020. Screaming Trees started way back in 1986, so they preceded a lot of their grunge peers. They're both an influence on and part of the grunge scene, but they're always sort of an uneasy fit. Their sound was always a little bit more 60s and psychedelia-influenced. But Kurt Cobain was a huge fan of Lanigan. Lanigan's solo career began in 1990 while Screaming Trees were still going. And that year, before Nirvana Unplugged, it was Lanigan who first recorded a cover of Lead Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night with help from Kurt. That was on Lanigan's sole debut, The Winding Sheet, which Dave Grohl recently called a masterpiece. In his 2020 memoir, Sing Backwards and Weep, Lanigan wrote, I loved Kurt and I envied him because Nirvana were fully developed from the first moment I heard them. The trees, on the other hand, were always fighting, fighting each other, fighting fans and promoters and bouncers, fighting to find a direction. In the 2000s, Lanigan recorded and toured with Queens of the Stone Age, made some powerful music with Isabel Campbell of Bell and Sebastian, and continued his solo career. And as he discusses in his memoir, he had some terrible struggles with drug addiction, even became homeless for a while, but he did eventually clean up. It was his friend Anthony Bourdain who actually encouraged him to write that memoir. In his 2020 interview with Corey Grove, Mark Lanigan talked about all this and more. Let's get straight into that interview. How different is your life now compared to the mark in the book? How did you end up getting through all of this? Well, first I had to remove drugs and homelessness. <laughs> that was a major step. I mean, going from like sleeping under a, a tarp in the rain on the wet grass in Seattle to, you know, a sunny beautiful, you know, basically psych hospital in California, mm-hmm. and then going to the mandatory meetings there, I heard some guy say, he said, you know, I was out behind the dumpster at 7-Eleven for a year and a half, and so I knew I had to go to, and he named this place for a year and a half, and I thought, and I was about ready to be done with my month of rehab, and, you know, I had had this spiritual awakening, but I didn't know where I was going after that. I, I did not want to go back to Seattle, where I was still, you know, persona non grata, and had a lot of people that, you know, wished me ill for good reason, and I wanted to stay in California, And but I also knew that I just couldn't just walk out of this place and be okay. I had been this certain way for so many years, and now I knew I had I knew I had more work to do anyway, so I asked somebody, what, what is this place this guy mentioned? And they told me it's a, it's like a halfway house, a, a further, you know, another, a different kind of recovery place than drug rehab in a psych hospital. 
And I managed to get into this place. And I lived there for almost a year. And then when I moved out of there, I just moved to a friend's house across the street. Because Pasadena is sort of like recovery central. Mm -hmm. In California, you know, it's just like you can't throw a rock without hitting a 12-step meeting or a recovery house or a rehab facility. It's just one of those towns is packed with that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that and that was great for me because I needed to fully immerse myself in that. Just learn how to live, you know? So I, when I moved, I was in this place for eight months and then I moved across the street into a friend's house who was a ex-musician who was also, you know, had been to the same shit as me and, and started, you know, working construction in East L.A. and, and right before I was about to get, you know, about to leave this place, I came home one day and Duff McKagan was standing on the porch and I thought, oh shit, is, is Duff McKagan coming into this place? Because, you know, I had never met him, but of course, being from Seattle, he's, you know, an icon there. Yeah. And um, everybody knows who he is. And he wasn't there, of course, sitting in. He'd been clean for a number of years. Yeah. But he had heard somebody had told him about me. And it turns out he was a fan. We had never met. But being from Seattle, he just felt compelled to come, I guess, sort of track me down and see, you know, how I was and if he could assist in any way. And I went for a ride with him in his car, and we became really good pals. Subsequently, when I moved out, I moved across the street to this other friend's house and, you know, kept in contact with me. And then at some point, he asked me, you know, man, would you mind, like, moving into my house up above Mulholland to keep an eye on the place? (laughs) What? You know, I'm not going to turn that down. When I met him, he had been out of guns for... I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 years already. It had been a number of years, but he still had like, you know, houses everywhere because in the first go around, you know, he went from sleeping in his van in the valley and working at Black Angus <laughs> to suddenly having millions of dollars and he bought a lot of houses, real estate. When I met him, he had a bunch of houses and this one house in particular was a beautiful place that literally sat right up above Mulholland. You know, pool, studio built into the house. It's, you know, the kind of place I'd never even been into, but now I was living in this place rent-free. Anyway, long story short, I ended up living in his houses for three years mm-hmm. rent-free. As I started to, to work and stuff, he would never, ever allow me to pay him any rent. He always said, you're doing me a favor while driving around his cars, living in his houses. He was a guardian angel, basically. And that's how I, you know, in that same time frame, I reconnected with Josh Homme, who had played in the trees, and started playing with the Queens, got another solo deal, and just, and and then, like I said, I just, I just started to say yes to everything, you know. In the 90s, I, I might have talked to like two fans in the entire decade because I just was too busy. Like, I was out of the building while the band was still on stage. I was in a cab going to a dope house. Mm-hmm. That's the way it was. And uh, now it was like 
I was, you know, my life really didn't start until I was 33 or whatever. And I basically, you know, made records until 2004 or so. I relapsed and immediately, like, went into a coma for, like, 10 days or something, almost died. And when I came out of it, I was so, like, I can't explain it, but music was completely drained from me. It was the most fucked up thing. I couldn't, I just, I, I got no pleasure or anything out of music. Music that I had loved before, new music, music on radio, any kind of music, I did not want to hear it. And I, I couldn't hear it. And I certainly couldn't fucking write or sing it. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, I was like, okay what the fuck am I going to do now? And that same friend who I'd first lived with when I got out of the recovery house, when I first met Duff, was now married. And he gave me and my girlfriend a room to live in in their attic. And I needed a job, of course. Music wasn't going to work for me because I couldn't even listen to music. And he said, just come with me to work and you'll get a job. And I was like, I, I, you know, never done scenic painting. It was a job at a place that basically built sets for TV shows. Wow. And I went with him to work just, you know, out of sheer need and not knowing what else I was going to do. And it turns out his boss, she had seen me open for fire hose in like 1986 or something and <laughs> immediately hired me. Wow. So I, I ended up becoming a scenic painter. And I did that for, I don't know, over a year. I really enjoyed it. It was, you know, not challenging mentally, but it was, it was satisfying because every day it was something new. I was doing stuff that I was equipped to do, you know, paint walls <laughs> like that. And it wasn't illegal work. And, uh, and then eventually my good friend Greg Dooley insisted, basically insisted that I I go on tour with him because I, I still would do the odd, you know, guest spot on somebody's record or whatever, still not feeling music at all, just mm -hmm. like going through the motions. And he was like, he was like, I refuse to let you, you know, be a scenic fucking painter for the rest of your life when you're a singer. <laughs> a great one, you know. And so I started doing for him what I did with the Queens for a long time, which was sort of, you know, the guy comes on, does a few songs, and gives the show a different throw for a couple minutes and then leaves. And Greg. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs. Soul Surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. You know, it was really, really responsible for me actually, you know, physically getting out and doing music. And then eventually at some point, I did eight years of that stuff, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, between my last solo record and then when I eventually made another one. For eight years, I didn't do anything except guest spots. I did three records with Isabel Campbell where I wasn't responsible for writing any of the music. I was just there to support her vision and sing her song. Christmas and I really enjoyed that. That was another important step in getting me back into, you know, to, to where I am now. And I made a record. Me and Greg had talked for a long time. I mean, he played on a bunch of my records. I had played on a bunch of his, but we had always talked about making a record, you know, together. There's one thing when he comes in and does something that I ask him to do, and it's another thing when I come in and do something he asked me to do. But then when the two of us are together trying to create, and Greg is my best friend, by the way, it's, we have two completely different processes. We, we, even though we have a lot in common, musically, we just think differently mm -hmm. about you know what's appropriate and what isn't. So basically, it ended up taking us about 10 years to finish this record. We started like, you know, we both didn't have anything to do one Christmas, and we recorded a couple of songs and then didn't do anything for another year. And then that Christmas, we did the same thing. We did this for three Christmases in a row and came up with six songs and then just let like four years go by where we didn't, you know, mm -hmm. we were doing other stuff. I was, I did a couple of records with a British band called Soul Savers also at that time. There's been some misunderstanding. Yeah, and toured a lot with, with Isabel and with Soul Savers. And that uh, took up a lot of time. So in that eight years, I, I actually made like six records or so, but none of them were, you know, Mark Lanigan records or Mark Lanigan band records or whatever you want to call them. They were other things. And after I'd made the Gutter Twins record and toured on that, 
I went back to see painting because like, I still wasn't ready to, you know, I wasn't ready to, to, to write songs or, or do that stuff. And I was on vacation visiting my family in the Northwest and my nephews. We were at some store and they were looking at video games. And I said, Uncle Marv, do you, do you play video games? And I said, well, I did when I was a kid, but, you know, they were not like the ones you guys play. They were on big giant machines and pizza parlors. Mm-hmm. And you had to pay a quarter for every play. And I just then remembered that I had through my manager, still was my manager during that entire period of time, even though I wasn't really working on anything that he could commission or having to do it. He had called and said, you know, that somebody offered you like a video game trailer to make a song for a video game trailer. And it's pretty good money. And of course, you know, sneak painting is great, but it doesn't pay a lot of money, maybe as much as a school teacher might make. And mm-hmm. my parents were school teachers, so I know that that made us working class people because they didn't make hardly any money at all doing it. Yeah. And I was raised that way with like, you know, and, and being a drug addict for so many years, I've always had this financial insecurity that, you know, I had to have this amount of money every single day. And that never left me. And so when I had this offer of what was really good money, I said, well, you know, maybe I'll have to write a fucking song or at least try. And I told my nephews, you know, I just remembered that somebody offered me this music for this thing. And they said, what is it? What's it? Cause the game called. And I said, well, I think, and I had to look at my phone, the message, the text. I said, it's called Rage. And they already knew what it was. And it wasn't even out yet, you know? <laughs> So they, and they were, got so excited. They said, you have to do this. And, you know, and so I basically, to be cool in my nephew's eyes, I said, well, I called my manager. I said, is this, you know, video game thing still on? He's like, let me see. He's like, yeah, we still want you to, you know, put forth a, forth a song for this thing. And, and of course I went and did it with Alan Johannes, who I had made my last solo record with and I had played with him to Queens right before I was out of that band. Mm-hmm. And he was like basically the first guy I had ever met that was able to articulate my vision. In other words, I'm really limited. I mean, I'm much better now. I have a studio that I'm actually sitting in right now at my own house with, with instruments that I know how to play and pro tools that I know how to record with. Mm-hmm. I, have le- I have learned a few things. But still at that time, you know, I, the best I could do is just put together three or four shitty chords on the piece of guitar and then say to somebody, yeah, but I want it to sound like this. And I never was able to meet that person until I met Al, who is also like the greatest musician, you know, is criminally unknown, basically, yeah. except by, except by musicians. Mm-hmm. Who, re, who revere, like for instance, Mark Morton, the Lamb of God, was over here doing something for this record. He's coming out with the book. Mm-hmm. And, and when he found out that Alan was going to be here recording it, he was like, wait a minute. Like the text, you know, this is, we're having the text conversation. And then he was like, wait a minute. And then in caps, are you telling me Alan Johannes is going to be there? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, dude. He's, like, I, he's the guy who records all my shit. And he was like, oh, my God. How am I going to fucking, and this is a guy from, you know, a huge, 
huge popular band. Totally. Like, it was, it was like just so blown away that he was going to get to work with Alan Johannes. So, you know, people do know who he is, but they tend to be, you know, musicians, not like the public. But anyway, I got with Al, did this video game thing. We got the job after doing, you know, the, our version of the song. It's the blood we sing and burn. Thousand blackbirds on a string return. Made quite a bit of dough. And then he said, you know what, man, why don't we just keep going and make a fucking record? And I didn't have anything of it, you know. I, I was back at the painting. My, you know, guest spots and all that shit had, were, were done. And I said, yeah, you know, why not? And he said, write a fucking song the way that you used to. And the way I'd always written songs was I'd like, written, tried to write the first and the last song of a record first. <laughs> you know, the ones that seemed like they would be an opener and a closer. And then I would like fill in the middle. And that's what I did. That's what I did with Al. I, I wrote the first song, and while he was recording it, I was busy writing what I thought would be the last song and ended up being third to the last. But we basically, in 2012, just ended up writing just enough songs for this record, and that's all we needed. Whereas before, I had always, you know, had tons of, like, you know, partially done songs or get halfway in and ditch a song or always had a bunch of outtakes and shit and this was the first time I also hadn't made a record of my own for a very long time but it was the first time in many years it was the first time ever that I had just written just the amount of songs needed for the record and it was also a different kind of record than I had made before I, I allowed myself to indulge my like you know sort of I'd always been into electronic music electronic pop New Order, Depeche Mode, but then, you know, further back, I was, as a kid, I was into craft work and always loved them, and then all the crowd rock and stuff that I discovered on the back of that was really, you know, the music that I listened to mainly, and I, and I allowed myself to just indulge those influences, and Alan, of course, being the genius that he is, was just able to, you know, make every song exactly how I wanted it. The sun's tall and subterranean Wow. And that record ended up selling twice as much as my best-selling record had ever sold before, and that was Bubblegum in 2004. Mm-hmm. And, and that record was, like, packed with sort of, like, famous guest stars, Holly Harvey, Duff and Izzy, Josh, Nick... The Queens, and I always just like kind of put it down to that that I sold records for once because I had all these famous people on it. But this one was just me and Al basically. I think Josh came and played on one song, and Greg sang on one song. But that was it basically, you know, as far as famous like, guest stars. And, and in 2012, people had already stopped, you know, were starting to stop buying records. So it was, it was an outlier that suddenly I sold, you know, for me, a shitload of records. And it's still my favorite record I've ever done, you know, with my name on it. And the easiest record I ever made. It was the funnest record I ever made. It was uh, the most freeing experience 
I ever had making a record. And so after that, I was just like, okay, fuck, I'm, I'm back in it. You know, I, I'm actually, I, I'm actually, I've actually fuck, not only recouped, but like made a whole shitload of money and royalties on this record at a time when, you know, people were already stopped buying records. And so then I was out of my deal with 4AD because I had been with Beggars Group for like 10 years mm-hmm. and uh, irritated them the entire time by not making records. But the final one was for 4AD and then I was out of my deal. And I called a friend of mine who I'd known for 10 years named Jeff Barrett, who runs Heavenly Records. We're pretty famous in the 90s in Britain. Isn't stellar, well-beloved label there, part of the PS Group. And I I just knew that if, if this is how I got every deal I ever had, except for the first one, which was Sub Pop, and any major label deal that I got, which was you know, through a manager. But any other, like... You know, like my, my deal with beggars just came from me calling the guy who had been licensing my records from Sub Pop after I was done with my second deal with them. And I said, I'm not working with Sub Pop anymore, man. Mm-hmm. Are you? And he's like, no, I'm not either. And I was like, do you want to make records together? He's like, sure. And that's just what I did with Jeff, you know. I was like, I'm out of my beggars thing. Do you want to make records together? And he's like, sure. And the cool thing about him was he was like, you know what, I don't want to sign you to like a regular deal. I want you to own these masters. So you're going to, these records are going to be on your label so that you will own them and you can just license them to me. Cool. And that, and that was something that nobody does, you know, especially not somebody who runs a label. Nobody goes out of their way to, you know, point out to some ignoramus like me that that's, the way that you, you know, actually get to own your own shit and also put out records with a company and, you know, the machinery of uh, the label behind it. So he did me a great, great, great service there. And I've been with them almost 10 years. Wow. Just licensing, just licensing records with them. And that's how I got to where I am now, where I actually own my own home. Something I thought would never happen. I thought if I ever owned a home, it would be me dragging a trailer out to the parcel of land my own mother owns in Lancaster that doesn't have any electricity or plumbing or anything and just, you know, dying out there. <laughs> Instead, I actually have a fucking, you know, beautiful home, a, a wife of, I've been with 15 years and, Mm-hmm. I've just, you know, I've just been really lucky, basically. That's it. Just incredible luck. Something that strikes me about your story, just from what you told me and also just from what I read in the book, is you also had a lot of people that were kind of looking out for you. Like you talked about Duff looking out for you and your friend across the street and your friend that got you the, the painting job. One of the people that surprised me the most in the book that was looking out for you was Courtney Love. Yeah. And that's she was directly involved in saving my life. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I liked that you had that story in there because she's someone who's between fans on the internet and the press. She's not always gotten a fair shake, I feel like. And like, I thought it was nice that you had the story in here about her. Well, I, I had to, you know, I mean, on one hand, you know, I, I, I will always carry great guilt about my actions on the day that for, you know, decided to do what he did because I willfully ignored him. And I did that because in recent times I had become accustomed to trying to avoid being around Courtney. Mm -hmm. And I assumed that she would be there. 
And also, I was just a fucking shithead who was self-centered and didn't didn't respond to his friends. Mm-hmm. You know, even though he would have picked up the phone anytime I called. And once he was gone, and I saw like the devastation that it it, it caused for her, and also knowing that you know, also one of my very best friends in this entire world for years has been Dylan Carlson. He was Kurt's best friend. That's mm-hmm. how I met Kurt. And, you know, the way that suddenly both of those two people, one of whom I wasn't greatly fond of at first, Courtney, but one who I love deeply, Dylan, and had lived with for many, many years as a roommate, were, were being like maligned as, you know, the cause of, of this, you know, I, I, who I also loves death. And it was really just a dark and shitty time. I was still in that circle doing things I, I'm not proud of, but it also, I also knew that these weren't, I mean, these were just people like me and were my friends. And my friends were, were my family because I had, you know, I'd been, my, my family didn't want anything to do with me while I was a drug addict, and rightly so. But, you know, I remember coming into the pawn shop where I always went every day, and, and my friend who ran the place said, hey, you know, the weird, a weird thing happened the other day. Courtney Love came in here with some material about some rehab thing, and I said, my immediate response was, tell her to shove her fucking rehab. And this was like... I don't need rehab. I, unless somebody has some money for me or, you know, something I can sell or some drugs, I don't need your help. I was just that kind of, you know, recalcitrant shithead drug addict who'd rather be homeless than accept anyone's help. But when it came to the time when I had to leave, I was kind of boxed in. I hadn't left this 10-block area where I had lived at one point in a building for almost 10 years. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now I just stayed in that area, but now I was a homeless person. And so I was quite easy to find, let's put it that way. And a cop, a cop would give me a break, but had with the caveat that I was only getting that break if I went to rehab and got clean or left town in a week. <laughs> Otherwise... I was going to be in deep shit, and our deal was off, and I was, you know, going to be in a lot of trouble for something I'd done. And then, of course, I had the smarts to, to rip off a drug dealer that I was, you know, selling on the street for, who was a huge ex-con from upstate New York, who could easily have just broken me over his knee, and I, I just didn't have anywhere else to go. And I went back into the pawn shop this months later. And I said, well, I said, do you still have that thing that Courtney brought in here for me? And he's like, he was like, yeah, I've been hoping you would ask me about that. Cause you know, my friend who ran the shop was always trying to get me to get clean. 
offered to take me to meetings, all that kind of shit, and I, I'd always, you know, declined. But now I needed to get out of town, and he still had that information she had brought, and she ended up, you know, paying for, I don't know how many months, so the, the second rehab that I went to, like the MAP, the Musician's Assistance Program, which is was set up by this ex-jazz singer, saxophone player named Buddy Arnold, help people who didn't have money and had worked in music to get clean and, you know, get their lives in order. That was that was the literature that she had for me. Mm-hmm. And they paid, they paid for my rehab, but then, you know, like I said, I, I realized that I needed a lot more than just that. And she, been, she, had, she ended up paying for, because of course I was also unemployable and a mess physically after all the years of, you know, doing damage to myself. And she paid for, you know, my rent there for months. I remember waking up in rehab and the, the room was like filled with bags of new clothes that she had, she had sent in. She, I mean, Kurt and I were, were really close for years before he ever met her and also for years before he became famous. Mm-hmm. I was actually I was actually the famous one in our relationship for <laughs> a number of years, which is crazy. But, mm-hmm. but I always knew that he had this thing that was so much more, you know, I mean, I was a bricklayer compared to him. Mm-hmm. I knew that I knew that he had a natural. I just knew it from the moment I saw him singing in the Ellensburg Public Library, which is the tiny town I grew up in. That this guy had something magical, and it took a while, but you know, obviously, the world recognized it at some point, and we all know what happened with that. And so he had come to me, or actually Dylan had asked me to go see his friend's band play because his friend was a fan fan of mine. And that's how I met him, as a fan of mine. And so I was a a few years older than him. I had made a few records. I had toured Europe, you know, all stuff that was kind of exotic to guys from small towns in Washington at that time. Mm -hmm. And he looked up to me like sort of like a big brother and I remember Courtney leaving me a letter saying you know Kurt loved you as a big brother and would have wanted you to live and the world needs you to live you know and that was powerful because I hadn't done anything good for anybody in years and also I had failed him when he needed me most you know Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I, I owe her a great, great debt that I can never repay. But again, I owe a lot of people that same debt. You know, like you said, Greg Dooley, Kenny Richards, the guy who lived across the street who was tragically murdered a couple of years ago at his place in Joshua Tree. Oh, terrible. Um, I know, but that's the world we live in. But yeah, I've I've always just had this. I've always had just done the, the most incredibly shitty things and had like the most incredible love from people that I barely knew, you know, who have saved me. One thing that I didn't totally get from your book, and I mean, obviously your, your book moves very fast because you cover a lot of ground, but how did you move forward after Kurt's death? How do you move forward when something like that happens? 
Well, when when a drug addict loses a friend, they just do more drugs. I mean, logic would tell you you lose a friend, whether it be to suicide, but you know, really knowing that it's that the underlying causes are are other things. You know, depression, drug addiction, whatever. The, the, these are the things that bring a guy to suicide. And logic would tell you that when that happens to a friend of yours, it would make you wise up and say, oh, shit, man, do I want to end up like this too, you know? But instead, what a drug addict does is they just do more drugs mm-hmm. and, you know, cry in their beer. Mm-hmm. And how I moved forward was I, my really my best friend in Seattle was the singer of Allison James, Lane Staley. Mm-hmm. And I just... You know, I just stuck with the people that I knew. You know, I, Dylan Carlson, Lane Staley, and we continued to do what we always did. But now we were, you know, we were missing a huge piece of, of our lives. I can't say that it changed. It, it just made me go deeper into, you know, just wanting to fucking disappear and, and forget that I had had, you know, what had started as like this really, you know, pure relationship of a mutual uh, admiration for each other's music, mm-hmm. which we had for years, and, and you know, certain aspects of, you, you know, we like the same kind of music. We just, you know, just have, how friends are when you're young, yeah. when you make a friend. And, and then that had worked into a situation where he had become so famous and had said to me at one point, you know, you and Dylan are the only friends, real friends I have, and he had the height of his popularity. And it was just sad, but I also remember thinking, oh, damn, you know, what kind of friend am I? Because this guy used to look up to me, and he, and he, he always acted as though he did, although I knew he saw my decline. When I declined, I declined all the way. <laughs> but he still, you know, treated me with the same respect that he always had. And I just remember thinking, wow, I, I could have shown some fucking, I could have some, some decent guidance here to this kid who fucking looked up to me and who I loved. And, it's, and instead, I just was a guy who, you know, became one of those people that would go out and buy drugs for his more famous friends who couldn't go out in public. And, you know, that was hard to reconcile. And still, it will always be, you know. We do what we do, but also our our actions have a fucking effect on people. And I could have shown, I could have been a different kind of person and I, and I wasn't. I just, I just kept moving forward without him the same way I did with him. Which, which was just to continue on my path of self-destruction. Wow. It's one of these things that in hindsight you see things so differently. It's just sad, you know? It is sad. I mean, again, you know, having lost Tony, mm-hmm. I was like, because I've lost friends from all walks of life. But when you lose friends who are such, I mean, I, I think of Kurt and Tony even though they were two totally different kind of personalities in the same way in the effect that they had on the world. They were so, I mean, especially with with Bourdain because he was such a bright light 
mm-hmm. such a, a fearless fucking lover of life and people yet at this time when you know the president is like vilifying people everywhere is a total criminal and and Tony is going to these countries that you know our president is like saying are, are filled with you know, terrible people and are just you know shitholes whatever he, whatever terminology he's and then Tony Bourdain would go there and put a human face on it and get enmeshed with the with the local people and and show that these were not terrible people and and for a lot of people in America that was just that was their only window into any other world. Tony Bourdain was a bright fucking light at a time when darkness is so fucking prevalent in this world, and that's what makes it such a great loss. Guys like Chester Bennington. How many people's lives did he touch with the singing? Chris Cornell. Yeah. You know, obviously Kurt Cobain. You know, I'd see guys in their fucking 50s wearing Nirvana t-shirts, and I also see kids in their teens wearing Nirvana t-shirts. Mm-hmm. They will always touch people, and, and when you see somebody like that, it's a head-scratcher, but it, it also goes to prove that, of course, money and fame doesn't, doesn't bring you happiness. It yeah. does, in fact, the exact opposite for most people. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why most people who win the lottery, you know, their lives go down the shitter immediately. Yeah. There's a part where you talk about Scott Weiland, and you said that you recorded a song with STP that never came out. I was sort of curious what you could tell me about that. You know, this was during, I don't know, early 2000s, maybe. I think, I think they had been broken up for a while. They got back together. And I knew Scott from when I was using and now at this point neither one of us was and he somehow was in contact with one of my managers who, who said that they would like me to do this thing and they rented like some big house out in Malibu and I went out there and I, I did it and then I think they either broke up before the record came out again <laughs> or just or just decided not to release either the record or that song. But yeah, I never ended up on the record. And then shortly before he passed away, he was making a Christmas record. And I actually, I mean, I hate Davis, but I thought it was somebody fucking playing a joke on me. But I got, you know, my manager said, you know, Scott, why well, don't want you to sing the little drummer boy with him on this Christmas record he's making? Sort of the way like he did, like, Bowie I was. I remember I was just coming out of the movies, you know, and, and it was like, you know, bright sunny day in Los Angeles, and I'm thinking, this can't be real. You know what I mean? Like, Scott, what are you thinking, man? Yeah. But it turns it turns out that he did do the record, and I never heard of it. For all I know, it's great, <laughs> but that didn't feel right to me, and that was the last you know time I had any contact with him. He was so much more fun when he was getting loaded than when he wasn't. I actually enjoyed hanging out with him when we were loaded, but when he wasn't, he was, he carried like the weight of the fucking world on his shoulders. And I, I just, you know, that, I mean, I may get the impression that I'm a depressed person with speech in a casket, but I actually enjoy life. <laughs> Don't surround myself with like, you know, people who are really unhappy. And that's the way he always came across to me because I didn't know. I've been touring with those guys while he was clean and he was a different animal. 
like fucking I, I, I don't understand that one that I'm coming even though he always had like this lone wolf mentality the time that we spent together making records he was he was really really funny really really intelligent mm-hmm. really really fearless really really talented really really loving and he just went what fuck man you know you never know how unhappy somebody is yeah and then Chester Bennington after it was almost like oh now that his hero's gone he, he he's gonna go the same way and both these guys have multiple fucking children and and millions of bucks yeah it's just so sad man it, it's sad for the children and I mean I, I would have been the world's worst father after after I quit the band you know I had to fucking fight for inclusion in that band just to be able to fucking like you know write lyrics for those songs after being in the band for almost eight years yeah yeah it looked, and so it's like I don't owe those fuckers a damn thing yeah I did take I did take you know, I took it easy on everybody yeah I mean that's what makes it a great read I, I was gonna say too that Van I thought Van came, <laughs> it's funny to hear that because Van came off pretty well in your book he was the comedic relief my entire time in the band and he plus he was the only other guy that thought the same way I did like hey we need to do something great mm-hmm. it took us both a long time to get to a place where we were able and it was only because I refused to do the second record at the height of Nirvana Mania the one record that you know did well for the trees and I put that down only just to the period of time it came out in but also it, there is a very huge difference between that record and all the rest of them and that difference is I was in control of the lyrics and we had a new drummer that gave us instead of like a some kind of phony 60s psychedelia sound more of a classic hard rock sound and um, that, I think those two things are why Sweet Oblivion did better I'm not going to take the credit for its success because in the real world it really wasn't successful in fact just the single soundtrack that we gave our single away to for free was successful right <laughs> when our record came out no one gave a fuck anymore but yeah it, it took a long time and it took me saying I'm not making this record for them to allow me to be in on the songwriting process and to do it as a gang instead yeah. of just replaying the demos in the studio you know? Yeah. And that was many, many years into it. Yeah, that's crazy. That's really crazy. Yeah. It, it, indeed it is, especially for me. Yeah. It's like, it's like, will, it's like willingly going to prison for sure. And then suddenly paroling yourself, you know what I mean? Man. Well, I think I, I've asked the questions that I had. I just want to say that I really did enjoy your book. And, you know, it's one of these things that when I'm reading it, I'm happy to be talking to you about it now that you're here and you, you live to tell the story because... You know, reading that book, you're just like, even though you know the outcome, you're just like, I hope, <laughs> I hope it turns out okay. Yeah, that's just some of my friends that I know that you're alive, but obviously, but it didn't seem like that was going to happen. <laughs> like, well, I always thought that it was going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. except, except at those times of like extreme despair where thoughts of like, if I have to continue to live like this, maybe I'm better off not living. Yeah. But then something would intervene and... 
I would continue living. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's life for everybody. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Corey Grove for sharing his interview with Mark Lanigan. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We're always grateful. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.